This is an ABC podcast. This is Culture Compass with Sayuli Solomasina von Reiki on ABC Radio Australia. People travel all over the world to see Li'efeva. He's a Tufunga, a Samoan master tattooist trained in the art of tattoo. At the moment, so I'm working on a, a group of brothers, three brothers from Melbourne. These brothers will receive their tattoo from Li'efeva using the same instruments made from pig tusks, shells and wood that have been used for thousands of years. They flew in to uh, undertake the O, so uh, they'll be with me for the next three weeks. It's the stories we wear on our skin. Tattooing has been an integral part of our cultures for thousands of years. And you see it more now than ever outside the islands. Here in Australia, I see Samoan tattoo all around. Young men with the pea and women with their malu as well as the markings from elsewhere in Polynesia, Melanesia and Micronesia. It's a connection to home when you can't be there. And when you do go back, it's a sign of respect and pride to carry your culture all around the world. I'm Sayuli Salamasina von Reiki, and this is Culture Compass, the show about survival, revival and connection throughout the Pacific. The meaning of tattoo changes island to island, village to village, and it's also changed with time. Like so many of our practices, it was hugely impacted by missionaries, and in some nations the art was stopped for generations. Or as one of our guests says, it went quiet. But you're about to meet the people who are making it loud again. Likely I favor Imo Levi who is one of the people entrusted with continuing this practice. His interest in becoming a Tufunga began when he was living in Samoa as a teenager. I think it was the end of uh, college that I um, was about to pursue uh, a degree in uh, civil engineering. And um, I needed a, a big challenge to kind of uh, mentally prepare myself for the task ahead. And uh, it kind of uh, I redirected the course of my life because uh, at 17, when I got tattooed, um, it was only then my father told me the story of how our family in Safotu are one of the two original tattooing families of Samoa. So, but it had been four generations since the last Lee Fiber. I kind of took it upon myself to uh, pursue the, the craft to uh, return the tools to Safotu. So yeah, three years into civil engineering, I was only drawing tattoo. So um, I had to break it to my parents that I, I sh- had a strong urge to return home and uh, uh, learn the craft. Ten odd years later, that's wonderful. And also wanting to understand what is the process of becoming a tufunga and who did you learn from? Yeah, so the you go under a, an apprenticeship uh, system, but uh, it's more so just observing and stretching. So I learned from uh, Aleva'a Suwape, but uh, the apprenticeship system, you have to 
It's pretty much uh, learning how to to uh, stretch the skin and observe the matuo fiber of the, the master tattooer. Uh, only when he uh, can assist that you're ready that uh, you, you can uh, then pursue on your own. The, the tattoo that always sticks out was the first one. Yes, I was very nervous. I remember because I had just returned from helping out uh, stretching for another tufuma from uh, New Zealand. I had to uh, approach our carpenter because he would come around the house and fix our, our jobs around the house that he would always uh, sort of like bug me and tell me, hey, if you ever start, I want to be your first. Uh, when it came the time, I approached him and he was, uh, he forgot what he had said. <laughs> but it was a very uh, nerve-wracking experience because I was, even the stretches I had, one was an eight-year-old and another was a very inexperienced stretcher. So we were kind of thrown in a deep and uh, we had to sink or swim. Do you ever do non-traditional designs? Uh, yes. So um, as far as the Samoan patterns, yes, I also do contemporary work, not only contemporary Samoan tattooing, but also uh, non-Samoan patterns. So across the Pacific, uh, they're quite similar, but with minor differences, more linear and geometric uh, patterns of designs. I could tattoo with, with the traditional tools. So that the tools are a set of cones. I feel like, uh, we're, we're only limited to what the, the tools can do. I'm one to always trying to push the limitations of what the tools are capable of for tools that have been around for thousands of years and that are still relevant today really tells you. Uh, the implementations that they can make on the skin that the modern machinery cannot do. My creative side is always exploring outside of traditional tata of where we can take it. There's been a, a wide range of contemporary tattoos on not only motifs, but also placements on the body. You know, in, in talking about that, do you ever use the machine tools? No, no. So I, I strictly use uh, the tools, the traditional dao. Mm. And as a tufunga, do you feel a responsibility to help bring the practice to other Pacific cultures where it's not as strong? Yeah, I feel like when 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 that uh, if somebody does approach me, uh, I feel like I would have to take it on a case by case basis because uh, I feel an immense responsibility of who the character of the person too that that will go under an apprenticeship uh, system with myself. And I hope the other Tufungas will follow suit. I, I feel like I have an old soul just to preserve sort of uh, the mamalu or the rules that keep uh, work sacred. Because there's a very fine line, there's a lot of interest from the, the Western uh, tattoo scene. But yeah, I mean, I, I would... Uh, be very open if there were anyone that would like to learn and, and sort of uh, further pursue it in, in their cultural um, practices in our neighboring uh, Polynesian uh, islands. Yeah. There have been some variations due to different Tufungas uh, attempting to revive and having sort of different um, interpretations. Do you think Tatao is becoming more popular with younger generations? Absolutely. I feel like uh, we're, we're in a, a beautiful time in our history that not only is the practice safer, 
but the, the world has changed. Um, tattooing has become a lot more accepted globally. And also the understanding of, of uh, interpretation of the Bible, I, I guess, I think for a long time it was frowned upon. And people were excommunicated from the church if they received the tongue. But now, I think uh, five years ago, the Efakasa Church congregation lifted their ban for the church members of receiving the tongue. So a lot of changes. So they even write down to the Faifa'au's kids are allowed. As before, there was any church member was, I had to be excommunicated when I received mine in 2007. Okay. So you, if you can imagine this, a huge change that now even uh, deacons and uh, the pastor's kids are allowed. Yeah, because mm. I, I think I'm with that generation. If you were a uh, pastor's uh, son or daughter, we were not allowed to have a malu or a tatau at the time. But it's good to hear that the ban has been lifted. You've given the Samoa designs to Tongans before, and that caused a bit of controversy. So can you tell me a bit about that? Yeah, so I, I feel like there's too much focus in trying to uh, distinguish like a separation, but um, because uh, the, the Tongan Islands haven't been practicing for so long that we as Polynesia have forgotten that Tonga also have uh, Tatao practice. So the, the Tongan Tatao is, uh, is part of Tongan culture. There, there is only one surviving image of this practice in which while the Tongan people have been approaching Samoan Tufunga to, to try and revive their practice through this one image. The trouble is it's, this image is only from one angle. And if you see it, um, it's very reminiscent of the Samoan Tatao, uh, which correlates to what, what I was trying to explain that, uh, we are only, we are all the same. The art form has evolved over time, and Sean Mellon thinks that's a good thing. Sean is a senior curator of Pacific cultures at Te Papa Tongariwa in Aotearoa, and he also co-authored a book on Samoan Tatau. Tattooing is a tradition that he knows a lot about, but he wouldn't use that word. I remember Albert Wendt, the Samoan writer and novelist, I remember him years ago encouraging myself and some of my colleagues to avoid using the term because the term tradition gave the impression that our cultures are passed down through time from person to person, family to family, unchanged, as if they can be preserved in a bubble and just continuously passed on. Whereas in reality, there are aspects of continuity and change in all cultural practices so the way we did Tatao 150 years ago is very different than how we practice it today. The way we practice Tatao today is very different than how we did it in the 1960s. Yeah. You know, um, I think there's aspects of change and aspects of continuity, and the term tradition really obscures some of the change and some of the history um, of Tatao as an art form. And just it also obscures the agency and creativity of our people, Samoan people, when they are confronted with new ideas and innovations, but also challenges. And it's something we fought to keep alive when the missionaries came, wasn't it? When the missionaries turned up in the early 1800s in Samoa, they they did try and, or some of the denominations tried to suppress Tatao and its practices, associated practices. 
but you know a lot of Samoans went or converted to Christianity, but yeah. there was a lot of resistance too that I think people aren't aware of, where Samoans tried to hold on to some of the customs that um, the missionaries tried to suppress. And Tatao was one of those. And I think we should be very grateful that there were people throughout time who just persisted and tried to keep the art form alive. There's one story that comes to mind of a Samoan Matai, a Samoan chief, who kept putting off, putting off, putting off his conversion to Christianity because he wanted to get his Tatao. And then as soon as he got his Tatao, he converted to Christianity. <laughs> so I love that the Samoans. People, they're smart. You know, our ancestors were smart. They knew how to play the game and to, to get a little bit of this and a little bit of that and do what was right for their people and culture in different times. Yeah, we, we kind of adapted our ways <laughs> into Christianity right. as well, which was a, a great way of survival, really. But across the Pacific, there are other marking traditions. Did you study how it affected other countries other than Samoa? I haven't studied it in depth, but in general, I think the same um, process occurred. You know, the experience of Christianity and missionization occurred differently in different parts of the Pacific. There were different reactions to um, uh, the rules and obligations of being a Christian. The Tongans, for example, the decree came down from King George to Paul that, that tattooing was banned. It should be banned. It was forbidden. And it's only recently, in the last decade or two, that they've some people have been trying to revive it. Um, but in other places in the Pacific, it was it, it disappeared altogether. The late 20th century and the 21st century have been a real period of revival of tattoo and marking the body uh, across the region. So it's very exciting times. Why do you think people living abroad are choosing to get these tattoos, regardless of where they're from in the Pacific? Yeah, I think um, I think. In this New Zealand context, in Aotearoa, amongst Samoan communities, we've seen a range of responses uh, to Tatao and, and how it's important. In the past, say in the 1800s, you may have been tattooed with um, two or more other people, whereas today you can get a Tatao on your own. <laughs> um, today the malu um, can be a marking that marks your life journeys, your your um your achievements, either in school or academia or in your professional life or career, or your transition from being a young woman into a, a more mature woman, because there's a lot of connection and disconnection for young Samoan people in New Zealand to their homeland and to their cultural practices. We therefore get lots of different responses to what Tatao means. And, and I'm confident that Samoan society and culture has the room to accommodate those but not to say that it won't be contested. I mean, we don't want to put on the rose-coloured glasses. No. Um, there's, there's some things I've seen happen around Tatao which I can't be objective about. They do upset me. Um, but there are, there's much to celebrate as well. Well. It's certainly becoming more popular for younger generations to wear the marks of their family, regardless of where they live now. Like Papua New Guinean, Australian woman Moala James, who has been getting her marks at different life stages. It's something that her family in Papua New Guinea take great pride in. You know, I've obviously been raised by very proud, very vocal individuals. Um, my parents 
the other people in my community um, who also share that similar idea that just because we live in Australia, just because we live away from Papua New Guinea doesn't mean we have to stop practising culture. We don't have to assimilate, you know. We are both things. I mean, what an honour to wear my bubbles marks. What an honour to wear both my adopted and my um, biological great-grandmother's marks. It's an honour to do that as well. Uh, Yeah, it's an honour and it's a legacy that I can leave for my children as well. And how did your family in Papua New Guinea, how did they react mm-hmm. when you decided you wanted to get your skin marked? Yeah, um, that was a really special moment. I just came back from Papua New Guinea actually about oh, about a month ago uh, and that was the first time in about eight years thanks to COVID and everything. Um, and that was so special to be able to sit with my Bubu's generation and the oldest uh, woman in my family, my Bubu Nelly, and for her to just come up and just touch my chin and to touch my forehead and then to keep touching my arms and just um, just smile and just mm. be really happy um, that she could, you know, see the marks again. And my bubble, when she saw my face, she said, I haven't seen my mother's face in so many years. And, I mean, that always makes me so, like, I'm not going to think about it too much because I'll get emotional. But um, that, you know, that's really... That's so special to be able to do that as well for my bubble who hasn't seen her mother in how many years. So it's been very well received, <laughs> I suppose, is the, is the response. In Samoa, we call it the tatau. Mm. What do you call it in Papua New Guinea? Mm. In my language, the Motu language, we call it reva reva. So that's to refer to uh, all of the marks, but each of the marks have their own name as well. I'm a Motu Kekini and I'm also a white Australian woman. Uh, my mother is from Gubba Gubba Village in Papua New Guinea and my father is a white Australian man who has connections back to England and also to Scotland. Can you tell me a bit about the history of skin marking in Papua New Guinea? Yeah, absolutely. So I can only speak for my community, mm-hmm. so I'll only do that. Um, and I think the best way to tell it is to tell a story about my great-grandmothers. Um, so I have... Two great grandmothers on my mother's side. My, I have a biological great great grandmother, and I have an adopted great grandmother. But they were sisters, so um, my bubu, which is our word for grandmother, was adopted through that family village system. You know, keeps the babies in the family. Um, my great grandmothers were full body marks with reva reva from their toes all the way up to their head. Like literally, every crevice of their body was covered. Uh, and that practice had been happening for generations before them. But my great-grandmother's generation, that was the period of time, they called it the period of darkness before the missionaries came, before Christianity came into the village. So that was the period of darkness. And then when the missionaries came, they were actually Samoan missionaries. So we were you know, a lot more welcoming to them because they were brown like us. Um, the Samoan missionaries came along with other missionaries to our village and they told us that what we were doing was, it was wrong. It wasn't holy and that we had to stop. And there were stories from women from that time that remembered being in those marking huts and those marking homes and the missionaries coming and grabbing the tools and throwing them in the ocean. And there were women, old women in our village who had half-finished marks and you can see it as you go down their body and sometimes you can see it on the actual mark itself. It's just finished instant. You can see the change and the stop. 
So that changed in my great-grandmother's generation and then there was my grandmother's generation, my bubu's generation, and they were the ones who were went to the schools with nuns and uh, were taught by missionaries. We had the churches in the village and they were taught that this was not a practice that we should continue. And so my bubu's generation were also scared about getting marks. They were scared about the pain. They were scared about what it would mean. Um, because that is what they were taught to believe. So they didn't have any marks. But my bubu, when she came to Australia, she ended up getting some on her body because they were her mother's, both of her mother's marks, and she wanted to make sure that she had them. So my bubu's got some, and my bubu is part of that generation where it's the period of light, where the missionaries were in the village. So we've gone from period of darkness to period of light. So that's my bubu's generation. And then my mother's generation, uh, that generation who are seeing all the old people pass away. And as the old people pass away, the marks are leaving and the stories are leaving. And so my mum's generation and my mum and my aunties said, you know, we can't let it just stop. We're responsible for keeping this alive for our children. And so my mum and my aunties, my auntie Julia, my auntie Pixie, my auntie Nata, lots of other aunties there, um, they saw it as their responsibility to keep those marks alive. And so they went on this journey of reviving the marks. So looking through that anthropological text, I actually always find that so interesting that missionaries thought it was so wrong, but then they also, missionaries and anthropologists were also documenting it. I don't know why that is, but it's just something that I always think about. And so my mum and my aunties were going through anthropological texts, sitting down with our elders in the village and here in Australia and asking them about the marks. What does this mark mean? Where do we place this mark on the body? And they went through this journey. They created a series of documentaries as well called Tep Talk. Um, so Tep, which is tap, and then Talk, which is talking. So they created those documentaries uh, to document that journey, but also something for their daughters and their sons and their children to look at in the future. And it was about bringing that practice back into life. And then there's my generation now, which is, this is our practice. It's been brought back and now it's here. It's every day. Uh, and it's our responsibility to teach, it's now my responsibility and my legacy to teach my children if I have them in the future. This is our practice. And it was, uh, the way I talk about it is that our practice was quiet for a moment. It was quiet for a generation. It wasn't eradicated. So it just went quiet and now it's back and it's loud and it's here and it's in your face, literally. Um, <laughs> on your face as well. So that's kind of the journey of it going quiet, coming back, and now it's back here, and now we're just living that practice every day. That's yeah. wonderful. I love the way you look at it like that. Like mm. it was it was being quiet, and mm -mm. now we're loud again. Mm -mm. And, you know, your family has played a vital part in reviving the art, mm -mm. which is really wonderful. So mm. it's, it's a work in progress. Mm. It's, they're not all done at the same, you know, they're all mm. done at different stages of your life. Yeah, I always say that my marks acknowledge different um, moments of time. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, if you looked at my body now, I've got marks on my back, which were done in Papua New Guinea. Those mark that significant moment. These mark a moment when I came back from working um, in remote communities for six months. And then the ones in my back, on my on the back of my thighs, also acknowledge that time. And the ones in my face acknowledge 
when I graduated from university. So different moments and each of them tell a different story as well. Can you tell me a bit about what happened mm. um, when you were trying to get into a nightclub? Mm. Yeah, so was it last year? Yeah, last yeah. year. That was last year in um, June, I think. I It had literally been about two weeks since I came back from Aotearoa and I got my face done. Um, so I went and had this beautiful experience in Aotearoa and I got my marks done, came back two weeks later and we were out celebrating my partner's birthday and we were like, oh, we want to go dance, let's go out to the club. And so we all went out and I went to this one venue and I was denied entry at that venue and the reason I was denied entry was because of my marks because they had a blanket ban on all face, neck and hand tattoos is what they said. And so I said to the security guard, you know, these are cultural marks, um, are you still going to deny me entry? And he said yes. So uh, I waited about 24 hours before I reached out to the venue and I said, you know, this happened to me last night. Would you like to say anything further? Um, and they just said this is a blanket policy, you know, the textbook copy of this is what we do, blah, blah, blah. And I just went, no, nah, not good enough. Uh, and, yeah, from there it was a period of educating and you know I was angry as well I was like I just come from having such a beautiful experience getting my marks and that's always I was in this honeymoon phase is the way I called it um to come here and be just denied entry because I just wanted to dance that's what I wanted to do um and so I knew that I would have to educate both the venue but also the wider public. It was a timely reminder that there is still a lot of misinformation out mm. there. There's a lot of hatred out there, um, a lot of racism as well. So that was a moment where I was like, okay, now's the time to educate because I'm the eldest in my family. I'm going to be the head of my family here. And then we went to the Human Rights Commission uh, the Australian Human Rights Commission, and then they went to the venue, gave the venue an opportunity to respond, and then we went through mediation for about oh, four or five months. I graduated university during that time of going through the commission, but I had written as my last university paper about receiving my marks. And so that was an in-depth look into the history of the marks, into my journey of knowing that I was about to receive the marks on my face, so I had this paper that I gave to the venue and I said, this is my story and this is why I'm so angry. I gave them the documentaries that I spoke about before, the TEP Talk documentaries. They watched those. And then I gave them another series of resources and I said, this is why it's discrimination, this is why it's racial discrimination. Because there was also still some confusion where I think this was also just kind of in public conversation, not so much between myself and the venue, but oh, it's not racism because you're white. <laughs> and I was like, oh, okay, so we're back at that old chestnut. But And then we had that conversation, lots of mediation, and the flip for that organisation was uh, if you had told me that we would be here back then, I wouldn't have believed you. So they completely changed after they took in those resources and they were like, yeah, we see now as best as we can why this has been hurtful and we're going to change the policy, we're going to train our staff. Um, because we want to be an example for other venues. Those conversations were always so heavy, but they were so important because they needed to learn. And then by the end of it, it was like, 
you've done the work. It's been long work, but you've done it, and now here we are. And you can, hand to heart, say you can be an example for other venues. The more people like Moale are wearing their marks, the more the world understands what they mean to us. Li'ai Faiva thinks how they look could change with time as well. I feel uh, maybe Tatao in a hundred years would also look a lot different from the way Tatao looks now. It is our job to keep uh, making it relevant for our people to keep desiring to wear it. I think if it if it stays the same, it, it might phase out. As the practice gets loud again, we'll see more Tatao and skin markings all around the world. And even though the look feel and meaning might change over time, the significance stays the same. This is Culture Compass on ABC Radio Australia. Culture Compass is hosted by me, Sayuli Salamasina von Reiki. Our ABC Radio Australia executive producer is Falangafulu Inga Stunsner. From Dead Set Studios, our producer is Grace Pashley. And our executive producer is Rachel Fountain. This episode was produced on the lands of the Tarabal, Jagara and Dorambol people. We pay our respects to elders past and present. Music